I don't know, but I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's pizza. I am a pizza? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just thinking, this this is free. This is not in the notes. It has nothing to do. But all the, the kid stuff going on during worship and how vital those kids are to our community. I mean, they are they are a part of us. And I think about... Well, I think about the Changs and the Niftons because they have all the kids. Um, but I even think about how the husbands work hard to make it possible so the moms can stay home and be with the kids during the day, um, homeschool them. I, I, I truly believe that the fight in the end times is for our children. Um, I, I read a... Well, not, yeah, I read an article yesterday of three school districts in California that are now requiring teachers in elementary school to teach kids that uh, gender identity is not a choice, but it's biological. And so they have to teach the biology of it to our children. And then I read about a, a preschool teacher who is fighting for her job because she decided that... Um, every one of her kids in her preschool class needed to be given new names that were gender neutral. So she was making name tags for the kids in her preschool class that a boy or a girl could have the same name so that nobody was offended if, to be identified as gender. That's what's happening in our state. And I just, I'm so, so glad for you guys, the way, you know, the, the, the way you're giving your lives to make sure your kids are safe. You know, you've got, you've got three little girls that are quiet and three boys, and there's the Chang boys, you know. But uh, just kudos to the dads for making it possible for the moms to stay home. And, you know, I feel the same way. All, all, my, all my grandkids, all my, 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 my daughter-in-law and my two daughters are homeschooling. And for Lynn to homeschool is a big deal because she's not. She's not. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was free for nothing. And today is actually the uh, the last teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It only this is lesson number twenty to go through three chapters, um, and it's interesting because. Because this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ties up everything he taught through chapter 5, through chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. He ties it all up uh, in these last verses, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 7. And just in, in case you're wondering where we go from here, um, we're going to do the awesome foursome starting next week. 
we're going to do Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So you can start reading Galatians. And, I mean, if it took me 20 teachings to go through three chapters, Galatians has six, Ephesians has six, Philippians has three, but uh, four, probably in a year. We'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, four great letters to, to churches, each one having their own specific encouragement to a church that's going through certain things in that day and that hour. So we're going to go through those. And, uh, but let's jump in. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. And I'm going to read verse 21 through 23. It says, not everyone, so this is, that's a key, key phrase, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many, I remember last week um, when he was talking about the broad gate and the broad road, the narrow gate and the narrow road. Um, when he talked about the broad road and the broad gate, he said, many will find it. Many will be deceived. So Jesus is still talking about how there is going to be a great division between those who choose to follow after him and those who choose to follow after. And he's not talking about the world here. He's talking about teachings that sound good but are not biblically sound. And uh, people who have in their life um, enough display of power in their life that they're giving credence that allows them to deceive people. And so when he says, not everyone, in verse 21, verse 22, he says, many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus has gone from talking about false prophets that we talked about last week to talking about false professors, people who are going to use the name of Jesus to deceive people. Because their argument before Christ, this is Jesus saying, many are going to come to me. So Jesus is establishing himself as the advocate, as the judge of mercy or justice. Because he says, they're going to come to me. And they're going to say, hey, we cast out demons in your name. We, we prophesied in your name. We did signs and wonders in your name. And Jesus is saying, I have no idea who you are. I don't know you. So, first of all, we need to understand there is power. We sing this. There is power in the name of Jesus. So we need, first of all, to understand that the power is not necessarily based upon the one who's using the power. So there are believers who can do works in the name of Jesus. There are people who do mighty works in the name of Jesus to bring glory and honor to themselves. We've seen this different times in this generation. Um, probably the most, I'm going to say this, the, the most historical one in the 20th century 
um, was actually a child evangelist by the name of Marjo Gortner. And uh, Marjo, his parents had him preaching the gospel, doing signs and wonders when he was six and seven years old. He grew up to be a man evangelist. And they did a documentary on him with cameras backstage. He was not a believer. He did signs and wonders in Jesus' name. People were healed miraculously. And he does the whole thing for money, trash cans full of money. And so it's a picture of what can happen because the name of Jesus combined with the faith of the one. He says, didn't we cast out demons in your name? People come and they believe in the name of Jesus. Demons are going to leave. Demons will leave. Has nothing to do with the person who's declaring. It has to do with the person who believes in the name of Jesus. The same thing with healings, the, all the signs and wonders. But we need to understand what separates those who have the authority that Jesus will know and those who don't have the authority that Jesus won't know is the testimony of our faith based upon Romans 10, 9, and 10. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So obedience to Jesus doesn't earn our salvation. However, um, it gives evidence of the genuineness of our faith. Let me say that again. Obedience to Jesus does not earn our salvation. Hercules. My little joke. Um, does, but it does give evidence that our faith is genuine. This is what James says. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And many people quote that verse. Misquote it. It doesn't say faith without works is dead. It says Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we express our faith by works of obedience in Jesus' name. And Jesus, whenever he talks about works of obedience, he always includes the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the oppressed. Those are signs of one who truly has the the. the the living Christ within them, and has the desire to do the works of Jesus. Jesus said that he came. When, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to question whether or not he was the Messiah, Jesus says, go tell John what you see. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are being raised. The gospel is being preached to the poor. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. So as that which earns God's love of obedience to Jesus, to exalt works as that which earns God's love greatly undermines the grace of God. So we can never use the works that we do in Jesus' name to say that that somehow earns
man's love for us. And that really is the premise of what Jesus is saying here in this verse. Again, many will come to me, not a few, many will come to me and say, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I wonders in your name? They think that doing deeds somehow merited love and more importantly, entrance into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, depart from me. I, not only do I not know you, I never knew you. So, but also to exclude good works is unnecessary is to deny the influence of grace. So we exercise the works of the gospel of the kingdom as a testimony of God's grace in our life. We've received grace and therefore we minister grace. We go, we, we, we do not deny to help those who are in need. Uh, we present them like it's, what he's saying, what James is saying is, look, if somebody comes to you and they're hungry and they're cold and they're asking for food and a blanket, we don't say, I don't have food and a blanket right now, but here, you need to be saved. And we preach the gospel to them. We are not being Jesus. They're not going to listen to us if they're hungry and they're cold. They're going to go look for someone who's going to give them food, who's going to give them a blanket, and really, they're looking for someone or someones who will embrace them in relationship and community. The key to everything about the kingdom is relationship. You cannot have the kingdom of God in full operation if you do not have communal relationship. And when I'm talking about relationship, I'm not talking about one-on-one. -on -one. Yes, that's vital. I'm talking about what takes place in this room. I'm talking about what takes place in our house churches. I'm talking about what takes place when we get together as two or three or four families. There is something in relationship. I, I can say without any hesitation that I get joyful when I think about hanging with y'all. When I get up on Sunday morning, my joy is not like, oh, boy, I get to teach again. My joy is, oh, boy, I get to be with you all again. I get to be in the room with you. I get to share all my life with you and your life with me. And in that sharing, we truly are exercising the grace of God. It's in that, when, those, when signs and wonders take place in that type of relationship, in that type of setting, not only does Jesus know us, he's in the midst of it, doing works to bring glory to his name. So to exclude your works is unnecessary is to deny God's grace. And this is what, what Paul says when he writes to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So grace is available to everyone. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So salvation by works and salvation, and without works, both rob Jesus of his glory. So it is grace, walking in grace, it is salvation, but if there are no works that testify of God's grace in our life, then we really aren't glorifying the name of Jesus. Our works are an outpouring of God's inner work in our life. That's why I remember when we talked about forgiveness, where Jesus says, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. It's because that 
means, Jesus says, if you can't forgive, you never fully embraced or understood the power of my forgiveness for you. And he's saying the same thing here. If you do not do works of grace for people around you to exemplify who you are because of me, and that is to feed the poor, to care for the widow and the orphan, to care for the needy. If you're not doing those types of works, then you really never fully understood the working of grace in my life, in your life. And that's why when these who come to him and say, look at the power we had in your name, Jesus is saying it was never about the power of my name. It was about the grace of the cross to transform your hearts and lives to bring you salvation. That's why guys like Marjo Gortner could call people up and pray over them to be healed in Jesus' name, and healings took place because the faith of the people who were being prayed for and the name of Jesus combined together. Faith with Jesus' names brings results. And so we need to understand that supernatural ministry, power ministry, um, is not proof of genuine faith. Let me say that again. Supernatural ministry, power ministry, is not proof of a genuineness of faith. Because, again, Jesus is saying, you can do these things and not know me, and I don't know you. Um, there's testimonies. They have testimonies of prophecies. They have testimonies of healing miracles. They even have testimonies of exorcisms. And as important as the power of God in ministry is, nothing can compare to the purity of our heart to our humility, and to a soul that craves to be filled with the righteousness of Christ. See, people who want to operate strictly in power, it's about them. They somehow believe, that's why they say to Jesus, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do things that brought lots of people in and brought lots of glory to your name, and therefore are we not welcome in? And Jesus says, no, I don't know you. It's not about power. It's about righteousness. It's about humility. It's about purity of heart. It's about craving to be filled with a life that exemplifies the works of Christ. And so how, how do people like that become so deceived? Um, they're, they're not mass murderers. They're not you know, sex traffickers, they're not trafficking kids, they're not bad people. Holiday, drunkenness, love, but they embrace lifestyles of immorality, drunkenness, lying, lack of integrity. And, and just let me say, I mean, we, we have seen this many times in leadership, in great, expansive, well-known ministries. Um, they think that the name and the power, and, 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 I, and I'm not here to talk bad about any of them. I'm just saying that oftentimes, uh, and probably to the, the, the guy that most exemplified how you can minister in humility and have power over millions would be Billy Graham. The guys who can shout loud and you know, take the word of God and make it say what they want it to say and, and, and do great things and have great crowds. Some of those, Jesus may say, I don't know you. Some of those, the life that they have behind the scenes, 
does not exemplify the life they have on the stage. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It is not the signs and wonders that are the measurement of your faith. And I think that should be an encouragement to each one of us. Jesus is more moved by the cup of cold water that you give to somebody in his name than you are in the than he is in the flamboyance of prophecies and great displays of power. And so, and he's talking about this. He said, and, and so th these deceivers, their obedience is neglected as they live under the deception of a false grace. And, and this is not a problem just of our age. This is a problem that was taking place in the time of Paul. This is a problem that the Ephesians were fighting with when Paul said, look it, I'm leaving. I'm never going to see you again, but I want, want to warn you guys. There's going to be false teachers who are going to come, and try, come in and try and undo what I've done. And, and the church at Ephesus were very alert to false teachers, so, but so much so that they forgot about love. They forgot about loving their enemies. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says to them in Revelation 2. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, as I also do, but I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. So the motivator for everything we do is one thing and one thing alone, love. If we are not motivated by love, if we're motivated by anything else besides love, then we have the wrong motive. And so their focus, these types of ministries, their focus is mostly on their ministry and not on cultivating and discipling a life of discipleship. They mistake the supernatural for true spirituality and genuine goodness and godliness. And when they are come front to front with Jesus, face to face with Jesus, he just says, depart from me. That, that's pretty bold. You know, if we put it in modern day terminology, he'd say, get out of my face. He'd say, I don't know you. Don't, don't come in here pretending to be something you're not just because you use my name to do a few power works. So Jesus calls the ones who practice that type of ministry lawless. In fact, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's pretty clear. And, and I think for some, and, and it's not some because Jesus says many. He doesn't say a few. When Jesus talks about a few, he talks about the ones who find the narrow gate and the narrow road. He says, and few are those who find it. The call to holiness, and, and there are going to be many people. Jesus says, it's a hard road to walk. And there are going to be many people who choose the broad gate and the broad road. And both gates are going to say eternity. Both gates are going to have the same name. And both of them do lead, lead to eternity. One leads to eternal death. The other leads to eternal life. And so it's very easy to be deceived by the title on the gate. And there are many in the name of Jesus who are inviting people to come into the wide gate. And part of it, I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it until you get tired of it. We have to be very careful because love is the most powerful thing. The Bible tells us 
The definition of love is God. God is love. Nothing else. There is no other definition that rightly defines love. And we try to find human words, and unfortunately, we have minimized the word love because we love everything. We love clothes. We love cars. We love furniture. We love houses. We love food, and we love food, and we love food. You know, there are so many things we've attached the love to. And for some people, it is true that God is love because that's become their gods and that's what they love. But the true definition of love is God. And so when, when, we, when we come into kingdom life and kingdom practice, if our motivation is not love, then we are not living the life of Christ in doing what Jesus has called us to do. When Jesus says, I didn't know you, it's because they were never motivated by love and therefore they never knew God. And so Jesus then takes it to the next step. He's already told us about a, a wide gate or a broad gate and a broad road and many follow it. Then he talks about a narrow gate and a narrow path and few will follow it. And then he talks about, after he's talked about these false prophets, these guys who do signs and wonders, these guys who cast out demons, these guys who do miracles in Jesus' name, he said, let me, let me give you an illustration that lets you know um, what this is going to look like. And he tells the famous story of, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You know the song he's saying, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. But listen to what he says. Therefore... Remember, last week we talked about therefore. The therefore is connecting us to what he said before. So what did he say before? There's going to be a lot of people, many people, who come to me and say, we did great things in your name. Before that, there was the therefore about those who took the wide road and the narrow road. And he said, therefore, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So now this therefore is talking about, look it. Let me help you understand how easily it is going to be to be deceived by these who do power ministry but do not have my name or do not have my life in them. So this is the heart of the story of the foolish man and the wise man. He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine. So the sayings of mine he's talking about is the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is the same teaching. It didn't take Jesus 20 weeks to do the Sermon on the Mount. It took him probably a couple hours. So he said, everything I've said to you up till this moment, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. But everyone, and according to Jesus, will be many, who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. He just didn't say, uh-oh, it fell down. He said it was a big fail, a big fall. So Jesus is ending the Sermon on the Mount
that's consistent, a lifestyle of consistent obedience. So he's called us to renounce the values of secular culture that are so popular in the church. And, and it's, it's been a progression over the years. And again, I talked about God is love and culture right now is redefining love, which means they're redefining God. So if culture is telling us to love someone is to accept someone, regardless of who they are and what they're doing, then they're saying that's the kind of God they want to serve, a God that will accept everything and judge nothing. And, and unfortunately, that philosophy or that definition of love is infiltrating the church, and we see it happening more and more every day. I get um, a number of Christian magazines online, and every month there's another article about a megachurch pastor or a well-known pastor who is now encouraging his church to embrace the lifestyles of culture um, in order that we might win a few. And that is not what the Bible says. That is not how we're supposed to live. So even nothing can, can substitute obedience. And even a popular ministry can't camouflage disobedience in its, in, in its private life, in a private life, a, a life that isn't repented of sin. So, and there are many in the church who are deceived and not realizing that their obedience is going to be tested. So the whole premise of this teaching, Jesus is talking about these two houses, is the testing. Now, understand something. He doesn't tell us that the two homes look any different to the eye. In fact, they could be tract homes. They could be have the same floor plan, be painted the same color, look like everybody's dream house. And people will move into the house based upon how the house looks, how it appeals to them. But he said every house is going to be tested. Every house is going to be tested. And it says rain is going to come, floods are going to come, Winds are going to come and beat on the house. And what is going to determine the truth of the house is not its outward appearance, but the foundation upon which it was built. And so he's saying, look at everything I have taught you in this teaching. Whoever hears these sayings of mine, this is the foundation. Whatever ministry you build, whatever you do to follow after me, must be built on this foundation. If it's built on any other foundation, when testing comes, that, hell, that house will fail. He says it later in Matthew 24. He talks about, says the love, and we're back to many. If you read Matthew 24, specifically I think from about verse 17 to, to verse 23, there's about five or six times that Jesus says many, 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 many. One of the things he says is the love of many will grow cold. And he says many will be deceived, quite possibly even the elect. Buy into the house that's built. There are going to be many who are going to buy into the house that's built on sand because they like the way it looks. 
They like the way it feels. They like the appeal he has. But Jesus says, whether your house is built upon a rock or built upon a sand, there are going to come days of trial and days of testing. And Jesus talks about those days of trial and testing in Matthew 24. And so the one who builds his house on the rock is called wise. The one who builds his house on the sand is called foolish. And likewise, the one who decides to enter into and have fellowship with the house built upon the sand because of the way it looked and because they never took the time to find out the foundation upon which the house is built, they will also be foolish. And they will suffer the consequences even if they didn't build the house because they inhabited the house, they will suffer the consequences of the builder as well. Back to what he's saying. That's why the therefore is many will come to me and say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do signs and wonders in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And Jesus will say, I don't know you because the house that you're talking about wasn't built on me. The house you're trying to get me to buy doesn't have the foundation that is built upon me about who I am. And so how important is it for us today to live and to know the Sermon on the Mount? According to Jesus, it is eternally important. Our eternal life is based upon the foundation we build our life upon. And any time we allow that foundation to be adjusted, we allow it to be cracked. Anytime we allow instability to come in, it will eventually become sand. Jesus is the firm foundation. He is the cornerstone, according to Scripture. And so Jesus, you know, one hears Christ's words and acts upon them. That's the wise person. He, he or she obeys them. The result is if when we hear the words of Jesus, we obey the words of Jesus, we walk according to the words of Jesus, when the storms come, when, when the, with the storm of trial, the story of, tri story of tribulation, the storm, eventually a final judgment, whoever lives in that house built upon the foundation of the word of God will stand. And we need to understand that Jesus doesn't say if you live in the house built upon the, the foundation of rock, there's not going to be wind, there's not going to be rain, there's not going to be turmoil. He's saying the same troubles, the same storms that come to the house on the stone and the house on the sand will be the same storms and will be the same testing. What determines on how we stand is where we build our foundation. And we can't build our foundation on power. We must build our foundation upon the person who is the source of all power and authority, and that's Jesus. So then another one hears Jesus. So one hears Jesus' words, takes Jesus' words literally, and builds their life upon the rock. We sing the song, I will build my life upon the rock. It is a firm foundation. That's, that's what we do. We take the truth of God's word. We build our life upon that foundation. But Another hears the words of Christ and doesn't act upon the words according to the way they were intended or at all. Instead, they take after and they, they kind of build their own, their, their own life, their own theology, their own doctrines. They, they define Jesus by who they want him to be 
and not who he is. And when the storms come and the trials come and the rain comes and the wind comes, that house will fall because it's not built upon a foundation. In fact, if a house is built upon a foundation of sand, anybody who knows anything about building, there is no foundation. A foundation of sand is really not a foundation. A foundation of stone is a true foundation. So a house that's built upon sand is really not built upon a foundation. So here's a conflict in the emphasis of the commands of Jesus in the kingdom at stake. How can Jesus teach salvation is by grace alone, and yet entrance into heaven depends upon works? It sounds like there's a contradiction. Sounds like salvation is by grace alone, but eternal life, we have to have works. And I believe there's a cause and effect relationship between regeneration and obedience. So I don't think that in order for your salvation to be played out, there has to be works. I believe because Jesus lives in your heart and he is the foundation of your life, there are works. And that's the difference. That's how we know. We don't, the ones who come and said, did we not cast out demons in your name, do signs and wonders in your name, prophesy in your name? What they're saying is, didn't we do the works? Didn't we do the works to, to, to prove that we were yours? And Jesus says, I don't know you because they never had salvation. Salvation in Christ and Christ alone produces the works. False works will be built upon a foundationless home that will crumble when difficult times come. Because here's what happens. When difficult times come, the signs and the wonders, the prophecies, the healings aren't working. And when those aren't happening, if that's what your house is built upon, that's why Jesus says quite possibly even the elect will be deceived. Why? Because they built their house upon the false pretense of power. They didn't build their house upon the fashion of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whose name is all power and authority, and whose people whose lives are lived in that power. The signs and wonders that Jesus longs for are widows and orphans being cared for, the poor being fed, the needy being ministered, giving, you know, when in, in, in Matthew 19, I think it is, the sheep and the goats, when Jesus... He likes my legs. He looked at him the whole way. When Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, <laughs> you know, and he says, the ones on the left are the goats, the ones on the right are the sheep. What he says to them, first of all, he calls them nations. The sheep and the goats are not individuals. They're nations. And what determines what nations are godly and what nations are? When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. You know, and, and 
when the goats say, but wait a minute, when did we ever see you hungry? When did we ever see you naked? When did we ever see you in prison? When did we ever see you needy? And Jesus said, as much you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Or as much as you did not do it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And so obedience, I believe, Scripture teaches, flows out of true salvation. Power flows out of salvation. Power is not a measuring stick of salvation, nor is it a measuring stick of faith. It, it, our faith is measured by doing the works of Jesus. So it, it, obedience is essential into the entrance of the kingdom, and it consists of hearing and acting upon what Jesus says. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard his words, but are we acting on them? That's the question he's asking. And what do, do we feel a deeper sense of spiritual bankruptcy? Or are we proud of our obedience? I think no one ever arrives in our walk with Jesus. For me, I love the life I live, but there's always a sense in my heart that I want more of Jesus and I want to exemplify his life more. Um, the, the mandate of the church is to love our enemies. I just have to tell you, I'm not, very, I'm not good at loving my friends, let alone loving my enemies. I am, I am easily perturbed by people who live in houses built on stone. Let's don't worry about the ones built on sand. I just have it that people invade my space, my territory, I get bugged. That's, that's a real weakness of mine. So I, I'm always asking the Lord, and it's those dangerous prayers. Like if you ask the Lord for more faith, he's going to put you in circumstances you need faith. You know, when you ask the Lord for more love, he's going to let you encounter the people that are hard to love. And not that any of you are hard to love. I just want to make that clear right now. So, obedience is essential. So, do we grieve over sin or are we casual about moral and spiritual failures in ourselves and in others? Do we think it's no big deal? If somebody's living together, we think, well, that's, that's the culture we live in today. Do we think sin is, is just a, a result of a broken world right now? Um, are we more meek than we used to be, or are we arrogant and self-assertive and want to thrive and grow, that we want to become greater, more powerful, we want to have more authority, we want people to recognize us more? Do we show more mercy to others, or are we as self-absorbed as, as always or ever? Are we more self-absorbed than ever? Is our obedience external only? a mere conformity to rules for the convenience sake, or is our passion for purity a manner of our heart's desire? So we have to, Jesus is saying, you have to ask yourself these questions daily because these were his teachings. You know, he went back, remember, he, he, he addressed the Ten Commandments. You have heard it said, you know, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you're a murderer. You have heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus raised the stake, and he says, if you're not walking in those teachings of mine, because my teachings deal with the heart. 
My, my teachings deal with what's going on here, which is the foundation upon which the house will be built. So there are two men, both of whom hear Christ's words of instruction and exhortation. One obeys and the other one doesn't. The one who obeys is called wise because he builds his house on the rock of Jesus. The one who disobeys is called foolish because he's like a man who builds his house on the sun. So the difference between the two men, and this is Jesus' point, is their response to the Sermon on the Mount. The difference between the wise man and the foolish man is how they've responded to everything Jesus has taught this crowd up to this moment. He has systematically, step by step, walked them through what is required to live a life of purity and righteousness and holiness before God. And he's saying, if you adhere to these things I've just taught you, then you're told you. You may think hearing the teaching, if you do not adhere to these teachings that I told you, you may think hearing the teachings was enough, and you may go on and decide to build a house, but you're going to build it upon sand. And eventually that house will fall. So hearing the admiration, believing truth, and, and what you hear and admiring is not enough. Memorizing and preaching and singing and celebrating and defending what you've heard is not enough. There has to be acting. There has to be doing. There has to be obeying. That's why James can say, if your faith is not producing works, your faith is dead. He isn't saying you have to go out and do works to prove your faith. That's not what he's saying. Don't ever buy into that lie. That's how Jehovah's Witnesses live their lives. They believe they have to do works to prove their faith. Jesus is saying this, true faith will manifest godly works. So if we're truly walking in faith in a house built upon rock, our life is going to put forth works and fruit that exemplify the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. So, and that's again, that's why these guys who came and said, look at all we did in your name. Jesus says, wait a minute. Works do not produce salvation. Salvation produces works. And so both houses look the same. Both houses appear secure. There's no visible signs of weakness in anyone. Because think about it. If a house looks unstable to you and there's a storm, are you going to go into that house? If you live in earthquake country, are you going to live in a house that looks like if there's one shake, the thing's going to fall down? No. So the good house looks exactly like the house of deception. Or better yet, the deceiving house looks like the good house. When trials come, there will be people on the broad road who walk through the broad gate who are going to run into the unstable house built upon sand and it's going to come crashing down upon them. Those who have walked the narrow path and entered through the narrow gate, the house they come to will look exactly like the house on the other road. But it's going to be built upon a foundation of stone. And when you run into that house, it will withstand, according to Jesus, all the trials, all of the things that come because of the storm. And so we need to know. We need to, to know that the foolish man does not intentionally build a house that he thinks is going to fall. I want to watch. He doesn't say, I'm going to build this on sand because 
I want to watch this puppy fall down when the rain comes. I'm a bit on the sand because I love watching things fall over when the wind blows. It's not the three little pigs, huff and puff and blow your house down. He doesn't build it. When the foolish man builds that house, he actually believes that house will stand forever. He has all that confidence. But here's the problem. His confidence is in his ability to build the house. His confidence is not in the foundation upon which the house is to be built. The foundation are the teachings of Jesus. A foundationless house is a house that is built upon the ideas and teachings of man. It's built upon people who think, if I cast out demons in Jesus' name, my house will stand. If I do signs and wonders in Jesus' name, my house will stand. If I prophesy in Jesus' name, my house will stand. But without Jesus, the foundation, the house will not stand. And there are a lot of people who are drawn to what we call power ministry. There are a lot of people who love to go to the show. They love to hear the prophecies. They go from meeting to meeting, hoping that if they stand in line long enough, someone's going to give them a prophecy that will get them through to the next week when they can get another prophecy. There are people that love to go and, and to watch the wonders of healing. They love to watch crutches being put down. I love that. They love people to get up out of wheelchairs and walk. I, got, I love that. We saw that at the call, the, the call at, at Azusa Now. We saw people get up out of their wheelchair and walk, but we saw them walk into a house that was built upon a firm foundation. We saw them walk out of a context of people gathered together in the name of Jesus, the love of Jesus flowing, the power of the cross flowing, and people getting healed. We didn't see one guy up on a platform trying to say, look at me and look at all that I can do in Jesus' name because there's a whole bunch of different people, just unknown people doing things that nobody had ever seen before in Jesus' name. And Jesus, those who build on a foundation of obedience to what Jesus has said will stand the storm. Listen, I can't say this any more succinctly. The less you know about this book, the harder it's going to be to stand when the storm comes. If your life is not built upon his promises... If your life is not built upon what Jesus says he will do for you, and instead your life is built upon, am I going to be able to withstand the storm? You're not. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you button up those windows and tighten down that door and you tie things down, if you're not built on a firm foundation, you will eventually fall down. And the only foundation we have is the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, I've always said this, if, if we lived out the Sermon on the Mount, we would be powerful. If, because those three chapters sum up the whole book. It's kind of like those three chapters are our Bill of Rights. If you want to study the Constitution, read the Book of Romans. But if you want to know the Bill of Rights, live according to the Sermon on the Mount. You can't go wrong. If we lived out the Sermon on the Mount, we would see the world turned upside down. So Jesus invites everyone to be great in his sight. This is 
without regard of outward appearance or size of ministry. Greatness in God's eyes is not based upon our assessment of greatness. Greatness in God's eyes is based upon one thing, obedience. Are we obeying, obeying and doing what Jesus calls us to do? If Jesus calls you to give a cup of cold water in his name and nobody sees it, in heaven, bells are gonging because a great deed has just been done. And so we already went over this in Matthew 5. But I want to remind you again what Jesus says. Whoever breaks consistently one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so should be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does consistently and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom. So Jesus is warning about minimizing the least of his commands and teaching people to do so. Um, They will be least in the kingdom. So in other words, there are going to be people who have, have a foundation, who've accepted Christ as Savior, but they've stopped right there. They haven't built a house based upon works that are the fruit of faith. They minimize everything. There are a lot of people who believe this. They believe that their complete transformation is going to happen on the other side. They believe, I'm saved now. My job is just to struggle through and to be as good as I can. I've got Jesus. I got my salvation. I got my ticket to heaven. But when I get to heaven, then I'm going to be a new person and everything is going to be great. Jesus never intended we can make it to heaven to live our lives here barely so that we can make it to heaven. And Jesus says there will be people like that. He says this right here. Whoever does you know, whoever, one of the least of these commands and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He says you're going to make it to the kingdom of heaven. So, um, you know, th- there's a new paradigm in Jesus' kingdom for greatness. And greatness is based upon our love for Jesus, tested and proven under the pressures of life. When the stuff gets tough... How do we respond? Um, And for each of us, it's different things. The Lord has given Janet and I promises. When we're walking in obedience and all of a sudden it kind of feels like the promises aren't being fulfilled as big or as often as we thought they were, we have one or two choices. We can say, God, where are you? What's going on? Or we can say, God, You don't lie. You don't change. What you've promised, you're going to do. And so regardless of the storm right now, our faith is built upon the foundation of your word, and therefore we will trust you. And I have to tell you, no matter how tough the storm has gotten, and my wife will tell you the same thing, no matter how difficult the storm has gotten, we have never had the house cave in on us. It has stood every test. We have never gone without anything. God has always come through. So the evaluation of our life at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be revealed by the character of our faith. In other words, it's going to be revealed 
the foundation we built our house upon and the fruits of that house manifest in works of the kingdom. This is what Paul says. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul said, there are no options for foundations. There's one foundation. You can't choose another foundation. There's only one foundation. It's Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's works of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So here's what, what, what Paul's saying. Anyone who builds, there's only one foundation. Some people are going to build that foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone. To me, gold, silver, and precious stone are walking by faith in the promises of God's word and believing what God says and doing it. For me, wood, hay, and stubble is based upon the rational thinking of the church trying to build programs to somehow sustain attendance and somehow sustain keeping the lights on and paying the bills. When the fire comes, the foundation is going to be standing for everyone. But Jesus says, the one who built their ministry, who built their life with wood, hay, and straw, when the fire of testing comes, it's going to get burned up. But, but you will be saved but nothing you did will be able to stand before me as good works. But if you build on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, and the thing about gold, silver, and precious stone, no matter how hot the fire gets, gold will always be gold. Silver will always be silver. No matter how hot the fire gets, stones cannot be consumed by fire. So when we stand before Jesus, not only will our salvation be secure, the foundation but our works will be rewarded. So our works should not be based upon our own ideas or ideals. We shouldn't try to build a ministry or a name unto ourselves. Everything we build should be built with the promises of God's word according to the works that Jesus did, obeying what he calls us to do. And there are very, very, very few people who are called to do big things in the kingdom, but everybody is called to do great things. And we too often mistake greatness for bigness. And there are so many people who fall short of what God has called them to do because they don't feel like what they're doing is big enough. Jesus does not measure by bigness. He measures by greatness. And greatness is in gold, silver, and precious stone. Because you can build something really big with wood, hay, and straw. But when the fire of testing comes, no matter how big that structure is, the foundation will remain. Your salvation is secure. But what you present to Jesus as the fruit of your life in him will all be consumed because it wasn't built upon the gold, silver, and precious stone called the word of God.
So Jesus did not measure Christians and non-Christians. He differentiated only those who heard his sayings or teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, both groups read the Bible, both groups went to church, both groups listened to sermons, both groups listened to Christian music, some listened to Bethel, some listened to hymns, but they listened to Christian music. And we can't always recognize the difference between these people. There are a lot of churches that look and sound good. And it's not because the foundation is bad. It's because the motivation for building the house can't be seen. What is the motivation for building the house? And we can't always recognize the difference between these people. C.S. Lewis wrote of the resistance thinking that is against the world, yet for the world. I want to say that again. Resistance thinking is to be against the world. In other words, we are not to embrace the world as our culture. The church was never meant to reflect the culture of the world. The church was always meant to change the culture of the world. And so when C.S. Lewis talks about resistance thinking that is against the world yet for the world, he's saying this. Look it. We want to change the world by the gospel. We do not want to conform to the world and hope that in our conformity, someplace they find the gospel. So our message is both world-affirming and world-denying. We proclaim what God has called um, the world to be in dignity and destiny. At the same time, we proclaim that the world has become depraved that the world needs a savior. And the great mistake I've already talked about is we, we've embraced acceptance as love. Finally, Jesus says this, verse 28 and 29. And actually, it's not Jesus saying this. Um, Matthew says this. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes taught. This, Jesus taught the same scriptures that the scribes taught. The same things the scribes had taught them all their lives. And yet Jesus, in this very first teaching, blew everybody's mind because of the authority that came through his teaching. The scribes taught them all the time, and all they ever felt from the scribes was condemnation and rules and regulations. When Jesus spoke, they heard authority, they heard life, they heard freedom, they heard love, they heard kingdom. And so what most affected the first hearers in, this, in the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' authority. And here's the interesting thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks. He never has to say, okay, look it. I want to make something clear here. My dad is God, just so you know. And yeah, my mom's a human, but my dad, God, and the Holy Spirit, they impregnated my mom. So you have to listen to me because I'm not just a man. I'm God. He never once said, tried to build up tried to establish his authority. He simply spoke in authority. And in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first time he's teaching any of them. 
This is the first time they hear him. Some don't even know who he is. They just know there's a big crowd and they're following. And when he speaks, he says, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment. He's establishing authority right there. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? He says, I will declare to them that I never knew them. So he said, they're not only going to come to me as judge and not only going to submit to my my authority as judge, I am going to speak over them and I will declare to them in my authority that I never knew you. The destiny of human beings will not depend upon their knowledge and the use of his name. It will depend upon the knowledge of Jesus personally and his knowledge of them. The final sentence pronounced is stunning. What is it going to feel like to those who built this giant ministry of wood, hay, and straw on a foundation of sand that looks just like those who built a ministry of wood, hay, and straw on a foundation of stone? And the ones on sand, Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What do you mean I practice lawlessness? Come on, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I did signs and wonders in your name. Jesus says, get out of my face. I don't know you. All you did was lawlessness. So the question, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wanted everybody in that crowd to know, and he wants us to know today. He wants us to ask, which path are we going to follow? Are we going to enter through the narrow gate and take the narrow path, which has a house built upon rock? Or are we going to take the broad path with the Broadway that many will be on? We'll have many houses built upon sand. But when the storm sweeps over both roads, when the storm goes over both pathways, the houses on the wide road are going to fall and the houses on the narrow road are going to stand. So which foundation are we going to build? What type of message are we going to proclaim? We're called to live out the biblical message of the Sermon on the Mount. We should know this saying frontwards and backwards. We should know, blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. We should know everything about the Sermon on the Mount because it is the whole mixture of our foundation. Humility. Poverty of spirit, crying out to God for mercy, to hunger for justice is needed not to be absorbed in lifestyle. The radical message of Jesus is needed not to be absorbed into current cultural framework. It is to transform current cultural framework. We do not see the gospel today transforming culture. We see the church more and more every day embracing culture to try and somehow fit in. And some are doing it because they don't, wanna, they don't want their paycheck to go away. If they don't stand up and say, we support this, we don't support that, we believe this, we don't believe that, they don't want their ministry to fail, they don't want to become the subject of newspaper articles, of ridicule, of rejection, so they'll just go with the flow, and all the while behind the scenes saying, look, we're just doing this so that we can get them to come into the church, and when they get into the church, we're going to hit them with the power of the gospel, and they're going to be transformed. 
And I can say for the most part, there aren't many churches that are doing that. The ones who are trying to embrace the world culturally are becoming the world in the name of Jesus. So, we are to retain a value system of our home culture as we live out our lives. When I say our home culture, I'm talking about the house built out of gold, silver, precious stone on a firm foundation. The downside is that we will be in a constant state of mourning, mourning as we experience daily reminders we're outsiders. It's becoming less and less popular to be a follower of Jesus. It will become harder and harder to be a follower of Jesus. There will be sadness at friendships, even family. It says mother, father, son, daughter will turn against each other because of Jesus. Those days are coming. That is part of the fire. That is part of the wind. That is part of the rain. That is part of the flood that comes. As we embrace our home culture, we find meaning and identity that simply doesn't exist in this strange place we live. Remember this. The Bible says we are strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. The more the world exerts itself and the more we refuse to conform to the world, the more we're going to be called all kinds of names and be given all kinds of tags, and we will be, as it were, aliens in our own land. So Jesus invites us to choose where we want to place our undiluted loyalty, to culture or to kingdom. We have to decide. Do we place our diluted loyalty in our country our traditions, our religion, and I should add our politics. Is that where we're finding our identity? Or do we funnel our loyalty into life in the kingdom? We can only choose one because no one can serve two masters. Jesus is the one who said that. He said in the context of money, you can't serve God and you can't serve money, but it doesn't matter what the other is. You can only serve one master. And the beauty of this choice is when we declare ourselves all in for this new thing Jesus is doing, we find ourselves wrapped up in a story bigger than we ever dreamed. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, Very truly, I, say, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. We will only do greater things if we build a house of, wood, of, of gold, silver, and precious stone upon the foundation of Jesus. And that house will manifest the works that Jesus did. In great, and here's why they're greater works. They're not greater in magnitude because we cannot do anything greater in magnitude than Jesus did. But we can do greater in quantity because he was one person in one place. We are many people in many places who bear the name of Jesus, who can do his works, and we can change the world. So I encourage you, at least once a month, read the Sermon on the Mount. Read it, meditate on it, use it as a checklist to just see how you're doing in the house you're building and the life you're living. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Jesus, we thank you for this great teaching. 
that is life to us. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would plant in each one of our hearts this truth, this reality. If we would live out this sermon every day of our lives, we would see this city turned upside down. We would see the kingdom of heaven invading the kingdom of earth and just blowing it up. So God, I'm asking by your Holy Spirit that we would be reminded daily of the mandate given to us by Jesus. Live out this sermon and you will build a house of gold, silver, and precious stone upon the foundation that is me that will stand all test, all time, and will be rewarded as you stand in my presence. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know I went 10 minutes over and I had four pages, but now we're done. <laughs>